Extraordinary Women. A podcast presenting extraordinary stories by ordinary women from Munich. So I'm Prashika Wright. I am South African and I've been living in Munich for almost seven and a half years. And I'm currently an energy therapist, but most of my focus goes into a trauma survivor community that I started just over a year ago. It was really interesting because I grew up under the time of apartheid. And so I grew up thinking that how I lived was normal. I remember hearing Nelson Mandela's name for the first time when I was nine years old. I knew that, you know, things were different and things were a little bit unusual because I grew up in a community of people of Indian heritage. There were no people of any other color. If there were Africans around, they didn't live in our community, but they worked in our community. And it was only in school, like I said, at the age of nine, when I first heard Nelson Mandela's name and slowly got to learn about the political struggle that was going on in the country at that time. So that was a very interesting time to, to grow up. Nelson Mandela was released a few years later, so it was also a very lucky time for me to have been a teenager growing up in South Africa because I had so much of opportunity in front of me. Um, I remember being selected to go on a youth leadership course with youth leaders across different communities when I was 14 going on 15, I think, if I remember correctly. And it was the first time that I had spoken eye to eye with a fellow African. It was really interesting. We, ha we were speaking about our day-to-day -day school experiences, and he was telling us that for the first six years of his school life, he went to school with no shoes. So it was a very, very interesting time. It was very educational. It was very empowering. I feel very blessed to have grown up just as things were changing in the country. Well, besides the country itself being one of the most beautiful countries in the world, I think there is something that's quite unique about the South African people. Because of our history, we have become very warm and open. Uh, any tourist that's been to South Africa, I'm sure will talk about how warm and friendly the South African people are. Your neighbor is your family. You know, during the summertime, you invite your neighbors over for a barbecue. You don't need an, a special invitation to go over to your neighbor for a meal. You go over to say hello and you get invited to sit down at the dinner table. And we do that with, um, with tourists that we, we meet as well. And that's what people love about the country. So I think it's the South African hospitality for sure. Mm -hmm. And the rugby team. We won the World Cup last year. <laughs> yeah, I do miss... My grandparents, my um, all of them have passed away. And I feel that they have had the biggest influence on me. They have 
instilled in me values that I live by today. And I think one of the biggest one of those values is being of service. When my grandparents grew up, they didn't have schools available to them. Um, so none of them were formally educated. And we, I'm talking about primary school. I'm talking about kindergarten. They didn't even have that available to them. But they did learn um, to read and write on their own so that they could get by with daily life. They did not have the jobs that, you know, we know today available to them. My grandfather was a car mechanic. My granny, um, both my grannies were housewives. And my grandfather on my mother's side um, was a clerk in, in a sugar mill doing very basic office administration type of work. What was most important to them is because everybody around them found themselves in similar circumstances, circumstances of poverty, where sometimes you didn't know when or where you would get your next meal from. You didn't know how you were going to find the money to send your children to school or how you were going to find the money to buy your children clothing as they grew up. They took care of people around them, not only family. They made sure that all of their neighbors were always taken care of. And even as they prospered, even as they made lives for themselves and made lives for their children, my parents, for example, they still continued to take care of their community. And once the community around them started to prosper, they continued to take care of those that were even less fortunate. So during the time of apartheid being dismantled, for example, um, more opportunity was available to, er to everybody. But the African community was still very, very poor. They did not have... They still lived in very rural areas, for example. They did not have access to what we had access to. But my family, I, I remember when I was very little, for example, my family cooking huge quantities of food and, and taking it to rural African villages during Christmas time to feed them so that, you know, they had food to eat. So I, I stand on the shoulders of my grandparents today. In everything I've done, I've always adopted this value of being in service. Even in my career and the job that I used to hold, I was very much focused on um, enablement of people. For example, when I was a manager, I was very much focused on topics that mattered to the people that were working in my organization. A few years ago, however, I was no longer working in the corporate environment. Um, and I was in a relationship that ended pretty badly. My boyfriend had assaulted me on more than one occasion. And after the final occasion, I was in hospital. And I came out of hospital with really severe PTSD. It was so severe that I was unable to leave my apartment. I was terrified of being anywhere except my home. 
I was having flashbacks. I had insomnia. I had no appetite. I had no energy. There were days where I wasn't able to get out of bed. I wouldn't shower. I wouldn't eat. If I had to go to the doctor, I'd jump into a taxi, go there, get a taxi back and just go back home. My therapist used to come home to treat me for my PTSD. I was also on a cocktail of antidepressants, anti-anxiety and um, and sleep meds. And the severe PTSD lasted for five, almost six months. And thankfully, I, I did get better. And when I started to get better, I it was around the same time that I had to make a decision on whether to appeal the legal case against my abuser, my ex-boyfriend. All of the advice that I saw about the issue told me not to appeal. I was told that cases that were worse than mine were not successful. I was told that appealing would create more stress and therefore affect my recovery. But I decided to do it anyway because my abuser was lying. And because of his lies, he was indirectly saying that that didn't happen to me. And I just could not accept that. And so I decided to to actually then write the appeal myself. My lawyer at the time got it translated. And I decided to do it for me. It wasn't about him and what was going to happen to him. It was about me. I wanted the truth to be told. I wanted the full story to be heard. And so that's why I decided to write it myself. I tried to connect with other women that had been through something similar. And I'd reached out to a few centers in Munich that support women that have been assaulted. And I was seeking a support community, a support group, and I was told that they weren't any available, or if there was, then it was something that happened just for a specific period of time, and it wasn't available to somebody who uh, who doesn't speak German. And my German is fairly basic, but I felt that for a topic that is of such a sensitive nature, I need to be able to speak in my in my mother language. So I didn't have that available to me. But anyway, I, I proceeded with the appeal. And a few months later, I got the information that the appeal was successful. And a few months after that, I got the information that they were not going to pursue charges because there was no hard evidence that it was him that, in fact, assaulted me. At this point, it didn't matter because what mattered to me was that I told the truth about what happened to me. It's still there in black and white in a police file somewhere. I still had at the back of my head that there was no support community available. And I was getting better, but I still wanted to connect to other women that had been through something similar because I wanted to understand whether what was happening to me was also happening to others or whether it was, you know, just me going crazy <laughs> because I used to jump every time the doorbell used to ring. And it, you know, for almost a year afterwards. 
And I needed to know that it was normal, that it was okay. And for some reason, I didn't want my doctor telling me it was okay. I wanted to hear it from somebody who had been through something similar. And I came across um, a Facebook group that was a community of expat women. And there was a post on there one day, an anonymous post, about someone seeking advice because they were in abusive circumstances. And I took it as a sign that, okay, I have this person now that I can connect to. And so I reached out to her, and at the same time, I decided that I'm going to start this community that I myself was looking for. And so I then wrote a post in the same Facebook group telling my story and offering for people that had been through any type of abuse, emotional, physical, or sexual, in childhood or as an adult, to come forward and and join us. And I remember telling myself at the time, even if just one woman comes forward, that's more than enough. I just need to speak to someone right now. And it was December 2018, a group of four women and myself got together and had our first meeting. And it is now a community of almost 50 women that have come forward over the the last year and a month. Support is provided to the women through various channels. We have um, support group meetings every month. Um, Some people aren't ready to talk in a group setting or are still highly traumatized, so a group setting isn't the right place for them, so I meet them one-on-one. And some women are unfortunately still in abusive circumstances and are unable to meet, and so we talk on the phone. The community is a safe haven, and I think that's why people that are currently in abusive circumstances are able to come forward and say, this is what is happening to me, because there is no judgment and there's no advice given either. It's just a place that you can come to and explain your story if you want to. If you want help, you can ask for help. If you want advice, you can ask for advice. So on occasion, I've also accompanied women to shelters. I've accompanied women to clinics, to the police, etc. And it's quite an extraordinary group of women. There is definitely this unique empathy and compassion that we have for each other because we we really understand each other better than I think anybody um, anybody else does. And we come together at our group meetings. We we share our healing experiences. I um, I teach about trauma now and I teach about its impact and I teach exercises on how to heal from trauma in the meetings. And, you know, We cry together, we laugh together, we dance together, and sometimes we get a little drunk together when we go out and have some fun. So it's it's something quite special. Words have power. And when we refer to somebody as a victim, you are taking away their power. They've already had their power taken away by the person that abused them. The word victim is mainly used in a legal 
since. And we want to keep it that way. Of course, a woman is entitled to use the word victim to describe herself if she's describing a particular set of circumstances. But let her choose to use that word and don't label her. It takes extraordinary strength and extraordinary courage to survive any type of abuse. And so that's why we refer to it as survivor and we use that word in every instance that we can. So in the community, we have women from literally every continent across the world and um, all different ages and all different types of abuse, all different types of trauma. You know, we also have women in the group that have um, lost loved ones and the grief have been, has been very intense and that is a trauma as well. So we welcome them into our community as well. We have women that have experienced sexual harassment in the workplace and that is also a significant trauma. So we also welcome them into our community. And when we come together, we don't necessarily have to speak about the details of the trauma unless, of course, you want to. Because it is a deeply, it's not only a deeply personal matter, it's also a painful matter. And sometimes instead of talking about it and simply remembering it, depending on where you are in your healing, you could end up reliving it when you talk about it. And of course, we don't want that to happen. Um, so that's why not all details are shared within the um, support group meetings. As I was saying, um, the community consists of women from literally every continent of all different ages and that has have experienced different types of abuse or different types of trauma. The common thread that actually connects us is the pain. And when we speak about what has happened to us when we speak about how we are having challenges with everyday life. We know that we are speaking to people that understand the pain that we feel. It's very different to speaking with somebody else that has no relation to the experience because that person might be too quick to say, have you tried this? Oh, it's not good to just lay in bed the whole day. Um, are you sure that this is okay? Are you sure that you're doing the right thing? Why don't you try to distract yourself? These are all the things that you hear from people who have no experience of anything similar. So when you speak to somebody that does have a similar experience, they can feel your pain and they can truly understand without having to question you. They can truly 
deeply understand what you are talking about. And so that's why you are truly heard. Nobody has to ask you any questions. And when I sit across from somebody and tell them what I have been through, and I am not questioned, I'm given this opportunity to simply speak how I feel, not speak in fear of being judged. Um, if I want advice, I can ask for it, but otherwise I'm not going to be given advice. And I'm going to be comforted. I don't feel ashamed to speak in such a space because I know that I'm speaking to girls that have been through something similar and that are not going to question me about how I put myself in that situation or how did it come to happen to me or I should have known better or, you know, all of the things that we really don't need to hear when we have experienced something so traumatic. So to answer the first question, there is a huge culture of victim blaming that permeates our society. When we hear of a rape, for example, in the media, we sometimes might question how much did she have to drink or why was she drunk or what was she wearing these are all very direct victim-blaming points that place partial responsibility on the survivor. There are also ways in which you can indirectly victim-blame with well-meaning intention. So by offering advice on what the person should have done differently or should do differently in the future, even. So, for example, um, the last time I was assaulted was in his apartment. And one of my friends asked me, why did you even go there? And this was coming from a close friend. And even though it was well-intentioned, I immediately thought, Oh my goodness, yes, I could have prevented this from happening to me. And it took me a long time to realize that I was not at all responsible for the assault. The only person responsible for abuse is the abuser. And there have been way too many cases of victim blaming I think um, we, we actually don't hear about all of them. We only hear about the big ones in the media, but there's just been way, way too many of them. There was an exhibition that a survivor community in the U.S. put together that displayed the clothes that victims were wearing when they were raped. And it was everything from a set of diapers to a hijab 
to a tracksuit. Rape has existed even when the fashion was long skirts and high neck shirts. So what a person wears has nothing to do with what happens to them. So if somebody comes to you and they explain that they have been abused emotionally, physically or sexually, know straight away that they are putting an enormous amount of trust in you because it is so difficult to talk about this topic because I was one of those people who thought it would never happen to me. I'm an intelligent woman. I'll be able to protect myself. And there I was. And it happened. And I felt ashamed that it happened to me. And it takes a lot to unfeel that shame and then to have the courage to come forward and speak about it. So when somebody comes to you, know that that person is placing an enormous amount of trust in you and handle that trust very delicately. The first thing you need to do is with compassion and with love, simply listen. All you have to do is say, tell me what happened. I'm here for you. And you can show your affection physically if the person is open to it by holding their hand or comforting them with a hug. It's actually very important to comfort the body because that's where we feel a lot of the trauma too. And that person needs to feel safe when they are talking. Using phrases like, I'm so sorry, and I understand. I'm here for you. I'm here to simply listen. Tell me what you need. What can I do for you? If the person has been seriously injured and they're coming to you immediately afterwards, then they obviously need medical attention. And it's important that you encourage them, if not escort them or go together with them to seek medical help. Um, if there are no physical injuries, ask if they would like advice from a professional organization. The, the Frauenhilfe centers in Munich are very good. And they have great counselors available to help somebody who's been through the situation. Do not take on the role of doing the counseling or being the advice giver yourself. Your role as a friend, I believe, is simply to be there for your friend that has been through this horrific thing. Oh, wow, that is such a great question. What is it that motivates me to help these, these girls? I don't know. It's something that's that's intrinsic. It's something that is so, so natural to me. I come across somebody who has experienced something that has been traumatic, and I know I have the means to help them. So, of course, I'm going to help them. How can I not help them? <laughs> there, there isn't, a, you know, something really specific that I can say, yes, that's my, <laughs> my motivation. Um, yeah, I just... How can I not? 
Superpower. It's difficult for me to think of having a superpower. I have this incredible drive to bring about change in this topic because it was last year, November, on the International Day of Violence Against Women, that I was reminded about this. There was an article that was published on the day that said one in every four women in Germany are assaulted in some form. Four out of five domestic assault cases do not get reported. And every three days in Germany, a woman is killed. Every three days, a woman has her life taken by her partner or an ex-partner in Germany. How can we just sit by and be complacent about this? No. No, it has to stop. It has to stop and it cannot continue this way. So wherever I see an opportunity that I can do something and that I can make an impact, I'm going to grab at that opportunity. I remember that with my own experience, when the assault, when the last assault happened, the people around me told me to pursue charges because he had hurt me and they wanted him to be punished. And I remember telling them that no, I don't want to pursue charges because I don't want him to be punished. I know that his behavior stems from his own pain. So I don't want him to be punished for that. But in the end, I did come to the realization that I had to look at the situation in a very factual way, that a crime was committed, and that when you commit a crime, you have to face the consequences. And I do think that everybody is deserving of redemption. And I do hope to see improvements in the justice system where abusers are also offered the opportunity at rehabilitation. Because one of the main reasons that the crime of domestic assault doesn't get reported is because it occurs between two people that love each other. And you never want to see your loved one punished, do you? So partners will not report these incidents for that reason. So if we were to somehow change the system so that the person was offered rehabilitation as a consequence, at least for those crimes that are not severe, for example, murder and the loss of life. And I know it's a matter of degrees to determine what is severe and what isn't. But at the moment, there is nothing about rehabilitation 
in the system. You have the opportunity, instead of going through the justice system, to, for example, go to a Frauenhilfe centrum, and they will um, point you towards places you can go to that offer rehabilitation for the abuser. So, for example, in Munich, there is a center that men can go to that have anger issues um, where they are offered counseling. It is also, of course, extremely difficult for abusers to step up and admit and take responsibility for it. So if they are not willing to do it by going publicly to a center, then at least try to do it within a private setting by going and seeking therapy. Well, I hope that by telling my story itself inspires others to speak up. And I, I speak here today not only for myself, but also representing all of the women in my community that I've set up. All of them are extraordinary. And they're extraordinary simply for coming together and speaking their truth, sharing their experiences and supporting one another. And that simple act of coming together and telling your truth, that is huge inspiration in itself. And so I never hesitate at the opportunity to tell my story, even though I still struggle. It's still, it's still raw. I mean, I, I have accepted that I have PTSD. And on some days, it's worse than others. And, um, you know, in preparing for today and thinking about some of the things that I wanted to talk today, I found myself getting more anxious as well in the lead up to today. So I knew that today was going to be difficult, but it didn't stop me <laughs> from doing it. I, you know, so I, I, I choose to speak up and tell my truth in spite of it being difficult, because I hope that the value that that brings far outweighs the pain that I feel when I do speak about it. There is a quote that I often refer to for inspiration that I would like to mention. And it goes like this. Your deepest pain has the greatest potential to turn you into the strongest version of yourself. That's, that's made a huge difference to me over the years. And the other thing I would like to say is a big thank you for giving me the opportunity today to speak about this sensitive topic, um, for giving me the opportunity to highlight the community that I've set up, because I am choosing to do it today to help and encourage other women to speak up about what's happened to them because the more of us that speak up, the more we encourage other women to speak up when it does happen to them. And the more 
women that speak up about it, the more change we can affect. And those women who are fortunate enough to not have it had happened to them, I encourage them to also speak up and stand up for all women too, because this has simply been going on for far too long now, since the beginning of time. And yes, we had had improvements, but not enough. And so we need to continue talking about this ugly topic to affect change. So thank you for giving me the chance today to do my little bit <laughs> to try to affect this change. I'm truly grateful. Extraordinary Women, a podcast project by Jessica Capra and Mariana Sesma, supported by the Münchner Kulturreferat. <laughs>